Thank you for tuning in to Adversity University, and welcome to class. Hey, everyone, this is Sean. And before we get into today's interview, Garrett, Sam, and I just want to say thank you guys so much for all the support. This is episode 26, which marks half a year for us. We've been releasing these podcasts every Monday for the past six months now. And it's pretty crazy to think that this idea just started six months ago. And it's really insane the support we've gotten from you guys. We can't thank our guests enough for coming on. We've gotten some, some really high profile people that, um, you know, it's pretty, pretty surreal and pretty humbling to know that they're out there willing to help us because they know that our cause is to kind of help you guys. And there's a lot of adversity that goes on in everyone's lives. And I think that hearing these stories kind of motivates me to see the big picture and where things can end up. If you persevere, if you trust yourself, if you do everything in your power to get where you want to go, I think that life will take you there. Uh, Garrett, what do you think about today's guest? Well, first off, cheers to the first half year and hopefully to many more years to come. Uh, what a great guest Ron was. It was unbelievable to have him on. For those that are super interested in space, you guys are going to love this episode. We touched on so many cool topics. Uh, obviously, he works for NASA. We touch on SpaceX, Elon Musk, some of the future missions we have. I believe he mentioned we're going to the moon in 2024. Uh, some of the things that go into figuring out that mission and preparing for it, uh, the simulators, just some really cool stuff. And one thing that I have noted here, he was kind of talking about the people that he gets to work with and some characteristics he mentioned were poised, disciplined, determined. And it really made, it took me back to the Brian Riley interview that we just recently did and released. And it's cool to think about these guys are on complete opposite sides of the spectrum. As far as their job is concerned, they're both obviously leaders in their respective fields but the fact that they get to work with these great people every single day, that's just kind of a culture that I would love to be a part of. And uh, I really envy and enjoy listening to the jobs that they get to do and the people that they're surrounded with. They just sound like unbelievable jobs. Um, Sean, what'd you think? I obviously love this interview. I've been a very big space guy myself. My dad was an aerospace engineer and he worked with Ron. So I've kind of been surrounded by this for a long time. And Ron brings it up in the interview. It's a really exciting time right now for space exploration. There's a lot going on. There are other companies now, you know, Elon Musk has started SpaceX, which is the first ever private industry trying to achieve space exploration. And they've really been able to cut costs and really help push the pace of us getting to Mars, getting to the moon, all these things that are really big picture topics. You know, you want to talk about the human species and what we can accomplish. It's crazy to think that these things you see on TV shows from like the seventies, eighties, you know, Star Trek and all that, you know, it's starting to happen. We're starting to get out there. He talks about, we're going to start trying to build, you know, a base for lack of better words on the moon, because that makes it that much easier to ship out to other planets and get further and further. So really exciting stuff and very informative interview that I, I really enjoyed. And I hope you guys do as well extraterrestrial life we mentioned in there you're not going to want to miss that i also want to take the time to uh you know promote and send a shout out to my co-host sean because during the interview ron mentions how hard it is to get a mechanical engineering degree no matter what that's in and for those that don't know sean has and and got a 3.99 gpa in bio biomechanical engineering excuse me while also being an elite Division One athlete at Robert Morris University. So I'd like to give a quick shout out to him for all that he's accomplished. You'd be proud of yourself, buddy. 
Thanks, G. I appreciate the little tire pump there. And uh, it was biomedical, but, you know, we'll let that slip. Um, I don't know. I'm just a big... You said biomechanical. It's all right. Oh, bio, biomedical, excuse me. I don't know. I'm just a big believer that you can really accomplish anything you set your mind to. And, you know, a lot of people before us have obviously gone to school and done very well. So I, I just kind of made it a point to make school a priority, put that first. And then, you know, I uh, was fortunate enough to have some really good teachers, really good classmates to kind of help me through the way. So um, I appreciate that, G. Let's kick it on over to Ron Spencer. Buckle in, guys are going to the moon. The Colorado Rampage are excited to announce a player development partnership with Power Edge Pro Hockey. PEP's reactive countering training concept is the type of innovative skill development that will greatly impact our organization. Developing players to the next level is the Colorado Rampage's number one priority, and incorporating PEP hockey into our training will help us get there. Visit their website at corampage.com. That's C-O. R-A-M-P-A-G-E dot com. Be better today than you were yesterday and join the herd. Since 1958, when the position of flight director first began, there have only been 97 men and women selected for this incredibly elite position. The NASA flight director manages Mission Control Center and the entire mission is under their direction. Before our guest achieved this role, he was valedictorian of his high school, earned a bachelor's degree in aerospace engineering at Texas A&M, and immediately began working at the Johnson Space Center in Houston. He has led many flights in his 30-year career at NASA, and he's also a certified private pilot and scuba diver. Thank you for joining the podcast, Ron Spencer. Happy to be here. How are you, and how has COVID affected the progress going on at NASA? Oh, well, I'm doing good, and well, COVID has certainly made the work life different, but uh, we're still uh, moving along just as fast as before. Uh, we do a lot of teleworking uh, for the meetings and things that, you know, a lot of the job is not just showing up in mission control to execute the shift, which we still do in person, but it's also um, making the right plans for any contingency that might occur so that we're prepared when we get there. And that, a lot of that stuff we do through meetings, which we do through um, conferences and video conferences now. Yeah. Going back, uh, when you were growing up, what were your goals before going and working for NASA? Well, I uh, was interested in the space program as a, as a child the whole time. Um, like you said, I majored in aerospace engineering, always with kind of a uh, desire to work in the space program. And so luckily, I got the opportunity when I was uh, done with college. And now we're doing exciting things like heading to the moon soon. Uh, and setting up future Mars missions as well. So it's exciting time to be at NASA and kind of what I hope to do ever since I was a child. For the guests out there that don't know um, or understand mission control, usually they understand as the people you call when you say, Houston, we have a problem. Can you give the audience a description of how a mission control works? Sure. So we have a bunch of engineers in mission control. So we'll have one person that's responsible for the space station attitude control system, another one responsible for the oxygen life support, another person is responsible for communications, another person's for power, et cetera. And so these people are actually controlling space stations. So if the robotic arm uh, needs to be moved, a lot of times we'll just have someone in mission control in Houston actually send the command to move it. 
without the astronauts being involved. Same thing if we need to position a solar array in a certain position. And this way, the astronauts are free to do the experiments on board that require physical hands-on activity uh, and to fix things that require you to actually put a replacement part in, things that you couldn't command from remote. Um, but uh, most of the stuff that we do on day-to-day -day operations of the space station is commanding from mission control remotely. So as the flight director, you're in charge of a lot of the major mission decisions. What was your path to becoming flight director? Well, first, you know, it's, uh, majoring in a STEM area, so aerospace engineering for me, but we also have physics and math majors and, and other types there because we have a variety of roles. Um, and then shortly after that, I started working at NASA, did a little bit of spacecraft design for the, the design of space station before we built it. And then, you know, you just start off in one discipline or another in mission control. Mine, I start off in uh, planning the crew day, same as your father, Sean, and then moved on to uh, trajectory work for the space shuttle. And then eventually when you become a seasoned uh, veteran with a lot of experience in mission control, then you might get lucky enough to get the opportunity to lead the team as the flight director. You briefly mentioned earlier, we're going to the moon again soon, which is very exciting to be a part of. What is the timetable from training to testing to the actual day of launch and how do you oversee all of those tasks? So for us, uh, you know, there's training for the astronauts to do the mission and there's also training for the folks that work in mission control uh, to do the mission as well. And right now for the moon landings, we're trying to go back by 2024. And right now we're in the early development stages of working with the various, there's three different contractors right now that have three different competing designs for what that'll look like. And we're working with them right now to make sure their design is operationally feasible. Uh, where we can, we wanna make, you know, you don't wanna just have the design get turned over and then you gotta figure out how to operate it. You wanna kind of design it with that idea in mind as you go. So a little too early for training right now, because right now we're just trying to affect the design and figure out what we're going to get. But it's, it's going to be about a two-year lead time uh, to really start training in earnest once the design gets more mature and we figure out what the various spacecraft designs can do. And then you figure out how to use it, how to use it when things break, how to fix it, how to handle emergencies. Uh, so there's a lot involved, but it all starts with making sure the initial design is flexible enough to handle contingency scenarios uh, and then you you build a mission timeline you build procedures you build rules that govern if this fails then i'll do this other thing uh, so that when you show up on on console on the day that you have a problem you're as prepared as possible you mentioned that there's essentially three different contractors that you're waiting back to hear uh, their plans for the future on Space exploration has always been a government program until SpaceX became a private industry in the space exploration. How has Elon Musk's company SpaceX changed things for you at NASA? Well, it's really exciting times right now because uh, you know, really what NASA wants to be doing is the exploration side. And so anything that we can contract out, uh, so right now we're trying to pay providers, SpaceX is one of them, Boeing is going to be coming up as the next one, to deliver astronauts to the space station, then we don't have to do that job anymore. Now, we're still overseeing 
uh, the safety aspect of it to make sure their design and their operations are safe enough. Um, but in general, what we want to do is we want to just pay for the ride and then we are running space station or we're eventually going to be sending spacecraft to the moon and Mars. And if we can just get the service that we pay for and then the advantage to the taxpayer is that then other people can fly on a SpaceX or Boeing spacecraft if they want to pay as well. Okay. So it's kind of a cost sharing thing. It makes it cheaper as well. Yeah. I was talking to my dad briefly. You mentioned that you guys work together and he talked about the end of the shuttle program where the United States stopped launching manned rockets for a while. And we actually used Russia to send people to space. This sounds kind of similar to trusting other companies now like SpaceX. What are some of the challenges that come from having to work with outside countries and companies to help achieve your goals? Well, those are two different challenges. You know, with Space Station, we have several international partners. And so, you know, it's us not having the design of everything. You know, you have to understand enough of the other country or other company's design to make sure that it's safe enough to put American astronauts on. And you also have to make sure that it works with your hardware. For example, the, the Japanese and the Europeans each have modules that are attached to Space Station. And we have to make sure that when we're feeding them power, that we have the right hookups, or if there's a fire in their module, that the computers in the U.S. segment will respond properly. Same thing with SpaceX. You know, they're, they've designed their own free-flying spacecraft, but it eventually docks to Space Station and becomes part of Space Station for a few months. And so we have to make sure that all those interactions uh, are work properly as well. So it's two parts. One is to make sure when the spacecraft are attached together, that they'll work together. And then the other part is when SpaceX is in free flight with our astronauts, we have to know enough about their design to make sure that it's safe enough. On the day of a launch, how confident are you with all the preparation you've done? You mentioned you're four years out from going to the moon and there's a lot of work to do. On that day of launch, is everyone pretty much 100% sure that everything you've done is going to work or is there ever a little bit of nerve wracking moment there? Well, I think that it's pretty presumptuous to assume that you've got a hundred percent of it. Obviously we try to cover as much as we possibly can. Uh, we make sure that in critical system areas that there's redundant systems. So in case one fails, the other one will still work. A lot of critical areas will have like three sensors that'll read, uh, temperatures in a critical area. So if one of those temperature sensors fails, we still know we're getting good data from the other two. Um, so you prepare in design and in simulations. So what we do a lot of in the operations world is, you know, we will do simulations before we fly. And we're sitting in mission control in a room just like the one we're going to fly this, the actual spacecraft in. And then we have a really good computer system that will generate failures and in mission control, we really can't tell the difference between whether it's really happening or whether it's a simulation. And that's how we train ourselves to respond, think on your feet, make sure you understand the spacecraft enough to know what the options are. And so you do as much of those preparations as you can. But in the end, still on launch day, I think there's still, you know, it's, there's still a chance. We just try to reduce that chance as much as possible through a lot of hard work. Absolutely. If something was unfortunately to go wrong and you are in charge of that flight, how would you handle leading your people on both mentally and physically to kind of 
know that they are in good hands and they are still safe. Well, I mean, so the minor things happen frequently and every once in a while we'll have a bigger thing happen. Like we've had all three the control computers fail on space station twice now. And like I said, we'll have three computers so that any one of them, two could fail and any one of them would still control station. And then the odds are that you won't get all three to fail, but we've had it happen twice. And that's something that is beyond what you normally would practice because it's so unlikely and yet you still have to be able to think on your feet and deal with it. So part of it is, you may have seen the movie Apollo 13, where Gene Kranz is, is telling his people, work the problem. One of the problems is that, you know, people tend to get overwhelmed in any situation in life if they feel it's too much. So you just try to get people to just focus on what you know, you know, work it one piece at a time. Know, what, know when you have to make a decision. And then that gives yourself enough time to figure out what the options are before you have to make that decision. And so hopefully, you know, you'll always have enough time. So a lot of the things that are quick reaction, like a fire or a hole in the space, the spacecraft where the air is leaking out, we practice those tremendously so that we have quick reaction time. But then there's others that are more complex that you might have a little more time to figure out the problem. And that's what the simulations do. Even if we don't practice the exact problem we're going to have in space, we practice the right thought process. You mentioned simulations, computers, temperature sensors. Technology has come so far over the years. The first mission control that landed a man on the moon had less technology ability than a modern iPhone. How has technology changed to make flights easier, or is it still an incredibly difficult task to launch shuttles into space? Well, technology has come a long way to make our jobs easier because right now we have computers that are so much more capable than, than we had uh, for the moon landings, like you just described. And so a lot of complex failures, the computer will be able to recognize that, for example, my temperature sensor example. So if one temperature sensor was reading different than the other two, it used to be that we would have to be a manual command by an operator in mission control to disqualify the bad sensor. Now the computers would automatically look at that and disqualify the bad. And so the computers are able to do a lot of this for us, but computer software is only as good as your imagination as to what the failure might be. And you might even have a common cause failure where it's the same thing that takes out all three sensors. And now the computer doesn't know what to do. And so you still need to have a human figure out these problems. But as we move forward and the spacecraft become more and more complex and capable, having the computers help diagnose these problems helps us a lot. To Sean's point earlier about, you know, what, what percentage are you guys in confidence level going in when you're launching to the moon or any other planet we try to, uh, look at, I think that these simulators and with technology, would you agree that it possibly makes that percentage that much smaller because you're now doing simulations that are so much like the actual mission launch, you can almost prepare for any situation? Oh, for sure. I mean, the, the, the space station is way more complex than the moon landing was, even though the moon landing was the most difficult thing we've done, especially with the technology we had at the time. But space station just has so many more systems that even though you don't have, you know, as dire consequences of trying to land in a boulder field, just trying to keep everything running and having these computers help us check goes a long way. When we go to Mars and places even further beyond, then you'll get additional problem with the time it takes for the 
the command or the, the, the words from the astronauts there to reach us at the speed of light. And so you'll have a delayed response that you'd be more, you'll be relying on the computers even more for the quick response. You mentioned all the technology that helps with the actual flights and something that NASA does that a lot of people don't understand is your technology actually does affect our daily lives on earth. Uh, I did a little research and things like wireless headsets, memory foam, and even the camera on iPhones are a result of NASA technology. What are some of the other ways that NASA affects daily lives? Well, I think there's a lot of, you know, product spinoffs and you named a few Velcro hazmat suits, things like that. Uh, but I think it's also, and I don't know if NASA is unique to this, uh, but you know, just the way we handle complex problems, uh, I think that you'll see, you see oil and gas and other areas. They also have computerized fault detection systems for, for their hazards and how they control, you know, the complex refinery and things like that. And so, you know, I think that back in the day with mission control and having this console set up with all this data coming in and having people manage it from a central network, I think NASA really kind of spearheaded that. And so I think you'll see more and more companies do that kind of stuff. And then they have more and more uh, like NASA's pioneered remote control of things in, in anticipation of going to Mars. We have had rovers in Antarctica and on the side of volcanoes that we have controlled from another continent in getting ready for these things. And so I think you see a lot of other industry where they can do uh, remote control of operations where it's not safe for a human to be. As a leader in any field, uh, you're always faced with stressful decisions. What is the most stressful decision you've had to face as flight director and how do you maximize the odds of making the best decision? Well, uh, I'd say that, you know, we have a lot of tough decisions we have to go through, you know, not every day on consoles like that, but, you know, I've worked enough days on console to have a handful of those. And the simulations really prepare you for being able to respond to a change in what happened and what you were expecting to happen today uh, in dealing with complex problems, being able to develop your team and trust their expertise. So if it's a communications problem uh, that affects somebody else, the, the ability for them to be able to work together and me to be able to trust uh, that they have the right options when they're presenting them to me. Um, I'd say some of the examples were, you know, during the shuttle mission that I was lead flight director for, uh, we were uh, doing some final assembly of space station uh, nine years ago. And we had a module that flew up in the shuttle that we had to attach to station, and then we had to put it back in the shuttle uh, at the end of the mission. And there's, you know, a series of latches and bolts that, that attach it there. But we need to make sure that we left that birthing port for this module in pristine condition on space station when we left, because we were going to have an unmanned vehicle launched to the space station for the first time ever on the American side to that same port. And so we were getting some indications that some of the bolt mechanisms were hung up whenever we were trying to detach this module. And so it was a tough call because the shuttle can't stay forever. And we still need to make sure we get this module off correctly or we're not going to be able to get the next module, uh, which is remote controlled from Japan, uh, up there uh, properly. So 
it wasn't uh, astronauts' lives on the line, but it still was a big impact to both that shuttle mission and making sure you could handle the next mission. See, one of the challenges with space stations with some, if something breaks, you can't just go to Home Depot or someplace like that to go get your spare part and fix it. You have to deal with what you have there. And so you gotta be very careful, you know, how you leave it for the next mission. No kidding. As flight director, you're, you're a bit of the top dog. Um, how do you build that camaraderie with your colleagues in a sense that you obviously make the big decisions, but you have people around you that you lean on to get certain information from. So how do you build that kind of team atmosphere and how do you learn to trust your colleagues in making these big decisions? Well, I've been on both sides of the coin because before I was a flight director, I was one of those specialists in the mission control that answered to the flight director. Um, but a lot of it comes into you develop your team before you even show up in simulations and preparing for the mission, uh, thinking up scenarios that might go wrong and then writing a flight rule for how you would respond to that. But then you get into the simulations and, you know, we have a you have a complicated script that the training team does a really good job at trying to be very imaginative about what what three things might go wrong that if you tied together this way is a certain signature different than if they were just by themselves and then we have a debrief after each sim and then we as a team talk about okay what part of that went well what part could we do better next time and so i think that helps form the team unity both directions you know, as a flight director, I need to learn from these simulations each time on how to lead the team better, make sure that I've gotten, you know, that, that everyone understands what we're trying to do along the way. And you can get better responses from the team if they understand what, in the big picture where their, where their role is. And at the same time, on their part, you know, they get to practice and learn more and more about their system, learn how their system affects someone else's system in the room and vice versa. And so we do, that's why I said, you know, it's about a year to two years now, depending on how, compli how, how complicated the mission is, when we really start doing this training to lead up to the mission. And so you get a lot of time in a stressful situation working with your team. So you understand the technical part and the kind of be able to read people as to, are they confident in their answer or are they kind of guessing? And, you know, just a lot of it's just time together. You mentioned a lot of the business side of it though, right, too, with jobs and um, the simulations and learning to trust one another and them doing their part and having a successful mission. But what are, are there any personal things you guys do to get to know each other better? Like Sean and I are on hockey teams and a big part of it is trusting Sean to play well defensively and me doing well to stop the puck as a goaltender. But we also go outside of the game and we try to learn more about each other's situation or their stories. Do you guys do that um, maybe with dinners uh, you know, do stuff away from work that is a little bit more fun and exciting? Yeah, we do that some. We don't have that opportunity to do it all the time because, you know, everyone has families and has their own schedule. But, for example, I worked on the first two uh, Japanese cargo vehicle missions to space station. So one of them I was describing in that shuttle example earlier. But we would go to Japan a few times with, you know, me and my team of, of mission control folks to work with the Japanese operations team. And one time we went out there, we had a team building exercise where we all climbed Mount Fuji together. And so that was, you know, a, it's not an incredibly difficult thing, but it was still, uh, you know, it was 5,000 feet of vertical that you, you hike up. And then we went down the other side and a unique experience for everybody. And uh, you get to know people 
more than just at work that way. And you know, then, one of my dad's favorite experiences was uh, playing basketball as a group. That's right. And uh, also, uh, you know, softball teams and things like that. Yeah, we played a lot. Um, and then I worked for a long time uh, on the SpaceX spacecraft that just recently launched with uh, the Bob and Doug as the first uh, crew members on it. And so I'd gone to SpaceX a bunch with them and really got to know, you know, them as, uh, as individuals, not just crew members over the years of us working together to develop this spacecraft or help SpaceX develop it. Yeah. Some of those smaller tasks like a softball team and basketball may not seem that important, but speaking from my hockey team, you know, you get to know those guys on a very serious level. And I'm sure for you, you know, people from their work personalities. Whereas if you get to know people away from the office, away from the rink, you kind of understand them a lot more and it's a lot easier to talk to them and really like help them through things and they can help you more through things just because you build those bonds that are greater than your work relationship. For sure. And as a matter of fact, I've gotten the, the uh, opportunity to go on a national outdoor leadership school twice with uh, astronauts. So one time we went to Alaska for a kayak, a week long kayak expedition. And then another time we went backpacking in uh, the Olympic peninsula and it was it was very much team building there because you're bringing all of your own food you know powdered food and then you you go get water and and treat it and and you know we're going off on an adventure where we don't see anybody else for a week we have two guides that you know kind of help us along the way but you you're you end up in potentially stressful situations in a very different environment than you would see these astronauts at work and so you know it's they have to trust us when they're in space because we're making decisions that affect their lives up there. And then we need to understand them better, you know, as individuals so that, you know, I can kind of read, you know, whenever they're getting uh, maybe fatigued, but they don't want to tell me or just, to, just enough trust that, you know, they can challenge whether that's really a good idea to try to go do that activity tomorrow versus something else. You know, you get this deeper relationship uh, that is really pay off to have a better mission. So we don't do that stuff all the time, but I've had a few instances where I think it really pays off. It's cool to have the camaraderie and switching gears a little bit. Um, everyone faces personal setbacks away from work. Is there something that you would be willing to talk about that you have overcame um, in your process becoming flight director in your early stages of working or maybe even in college? Oh, I just think that, you know, it's, it's very competitive. Just even getting an engineering degree is, you know, it's, there's a lot of challenges there with, with college life and then trying to make sure you get enough grades to get a, you know, pursue the career path that you went to college for in the first place. And so it takes a lot of discipline to, to be able to do that. And then, you know, once you're at NASA, you know, a lot of companies will be like this too, but, you know, to, move up the corporate ladder, so to speak, you know, it may seem, you know, I just remember when I was younger and in my twenties, it just seemed like, wow, that's going to take forever. But you just have to diligently work hard at the assignment that you have right now. And then you never can tell what opportunities will be presented later on. Like you never knew, well, that guy ended up leaving and taking another job. I didn't see that coming. And now this opening is here. But if you wait till that opening is available, it's too late to be ready for it. Yeah, something else that my parents have kind of told me is that time's going to pass anyways. 
So even if you think, oh, it's going to take so long, it's going to be so far away, you will get there. So it's a matter of, do you want to have put the work in and be where you want to be? Or do you want to be behind and wish you were right. doing that earlier? <laughs> right. Or another way to even say it is that opportunity, you might not have thought it was going to come along and then it did, but you didn't put the work in. And so now you may have not been picked for that. And if you work hard the whole time, you won't have any regrets because you did your best and it either played out for you or not. Absolutely. Yeah, Ron, I think you put it greatly. And another way of saying it is pretty much put in the work today because you never know what you're going to get at the end. That's right. So space exploration is obviously a very expensive task and government funding is huge for what you guys do. How big of a factor are politics on NASA? Uh, I think the space program in general gets bipartisan support. Uh, it's just, you know, we don't always get a great support. I think that, uh, you know, I heard someone say this a few years ago, and I think it's, it's uh, pretty correct. I think most Americans are in favor of the space program. But uh, until recently, I think we've done a lot better job recently. Until recently, they didn't necessarily know exactly what we did. And so I think with the upcoming moon missions and uh, lately even with some of the stuff that's going on in the space station, I think that NASA's done a much better job of promoting it, being out there on the social media and getting people involved in what we do. Because, you know, really it's the American taxpayers that, that fund all of this and we do this at their, at their leisure. So if, you know, if we start to do something that the public doesn't is not interested in, then then as a government agency, we'll lose our funding. We won't do it anymore. So it's very important for us to get the word out about what we do and also, you know, kind of read the pulse of the country as to what is it that they want us to do. Yeah, absolutely. That leads me into my next question. You mentioned the moon in 2024 and Mars as a goal after that, but have you guys set any long-term goals? Like, where do you see NASA taking us in the next 50 years? Well, I think Mars is a long-term goal. Mm -hmm. So I think, you know, the moon is the near-term one, and that's going to be at least the next 10 to 12 years because initially, you know, the, the whole point this time is instead of Apollo planting the flag and bringing back a few rocks, this time we want to go to the moon to stay. Mm -hmm. And so in 2024, you know, we won't be staying but we will be starting to build the architecture, the infrastructure for us to be able to stay. And it's pretty exciting too, because we've recently discovered in the last few years that there's water ice at the bottom of uh, some of the craters at the South Pole. And so that's where we intend to go. And who knows what we'll find there? You know, part of the overall mission of NASA is to see if there's life out there somewhere else too. And that's one of the big goals for going to Mars. But the moon is kind of a proving ground for that. You know, you're going to have to be able to figure out how to stay on the moon for weeks and months at a time, which is not the 2024 mission. But by the time we get to 2028 or so, we're hoping to have that. And then whatever lessons you learn from that, then you apply to going to Mars. You mentioned other intelligent life. Have we tried contacting other intelligent life in the universe? And have they tried contacting us? So that's very interesting. So there's this program called uh, SETI, S-E-T-I, Search for Extraterrestrial Intelligence. It's been going on for at least 10 years. And the whole idea there is that, you know, first of all, 
for us to go find intelligent life, it would be very difficult because the nearest star is four light years away. And, but lately, you know, over the last 10 or 15 years, we've discovered a lot of exoplanets around a lot of these other stars. And so, you know, there could be a, a planet out there around one of those stars that is habitable to life. Now, the next question is, is it intelligent life or is it microbial life? And so for the intelligent life, you know, think about it this way. How, if there was another uh, civilization out there somewhere, how would they know we were here? Well, one way they would know would be our TV and radio signals that leave the planet. And if you're searching in those bandwidths somewhere in the universe, you would find something on that frequency that was not random. And so that's, that would tend you to make you believe that there's intelligent life that generated. So that's what we're looking for when we search the sky. Are there TV or radio signals versus just the solar background noise? Now, we haven't found it yet, but we are looking. Definitely crazy to think about. Uh, going back a little bit, some words you described, some of your colleagues are poised, disciplined, determined. What type of skills and characteristic traits uh, does NASA look for in prospective hire? So NASA's big, and we've got all types there. I mean, I can answer mostly for what we're looking for in folks that do mission control, but we also have engineering, we have uh, safety analysts, we also have uh, trainers that you know teach the astronauts how to do activities. And so it's pretty much all types, but in general, you know, you need to have good grades, uh, and most of them are in science, technology, engineering, and math, but not exclusively. And then for mission control type operations people, what I really look for is not only do are you able to handle complex um, thought processes, engineering, math, physics, but you still you need to be able to communicate as well. So if you're the smartest person in the world sitting in mission control, but you can't explain to me what's going on in your system, then the fact that you know it doesn't really help me much. You have to be able to communicate what the problem is, what the options are uh, to be effective. And I think the last question we have for you is that considering what you're doing has never been done before, how do you set goals as a team? Well, I think that that's not really that difficult because most people that come to NASA, especially working mission control, are space enthusiasts. And especially now that we're looking to go to the moon and we've got a bunch of robotic missions that go to Mars and other places in the solar system, um, in addition to eventually sending humans to Mars, I think that right now it's a pretty exciting time for Anyone that comes on, we have new spacecraft. We just launched the SpaceX spacecraft this year, which is the first new manned spacecraft uh, in a long, long time. First time we've launched Americans from an American spacecraft since 2011. And then we've got all this work coming up with the moon mission and, and, and even places beyond. So I think right now is uniquely satisfying for everyone because there's so much new stuff going on yeah it's been unreal to watch the progress and i wrote a paper on all that elon musk is doing obviously i have a little bit of the, the space bug growing up my dad was working with you at nasa so i've been really interested in that my whole life and it's awesome to hear that you guys are just as excited about it 
Oh, yeah. And I mean, I'm excited for not just NASA to do stuff, but I'm excited for SpaceX. I'm excited for the Russians. I want as much uh, stuff going on in space, as much adventure, discovery. Uh, obviously, NASA is at the forefront of a lot of that, but it's exciting times now that it's not exclusively NASA either. So it's almost the opposite of the space race. It's now helping each other get out there and explore more, right? Right, right. That's awesome. Well, we can't thank you enough for coming on. And I'm sure we could talk to you forever about space and what you've learned. Hey, no problem. Glad we were finally able to connect. Oh boy, that's so hot. I forgot what I should Thank you for listening to this episode of Adversity University. You can follow more news about Adversity University on our social media pages. Our Instagram handle is adversity underscore university. Our Twitter handle is adversity underscore UNIV. And our Facebook page is Adversity University. If you know of any high-level athlete or professional that has an interesting story of overcoming adversity and you think they should share it, you can email us at adversityuniversitytalkshow at gmail.com. You can also use that email if you are interested in becoming a sponsor for Adversity University. We look forward to bringing our listeners more content from interesting guests weekly, so stay tuned on social media to see who could be next and what our past guests are up to now. And with that... Class has concluded.